Ramble. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Bada bing, bada boom. Barty rang the doorbell of the dentist's home. It's Friday morning, 6 a.m. I mean, yeah, it's kind of early, but they hired her to be here, so she's kind of confused why nobody's answering the door for her. She's looking around, tapping her foot. Hello? Ding. She rings it again. No answer. Now, usually the live-in staff member, Hemraj, opens the door for her, but I don't know, maybe he's off today. She's starting to get anxious because she has a whole list of other people's houses that she has to clean all day long, and she's supposed to finish the dentist's house in the morning. Ding! She's only been working here for the past week, and she's thinking, I think I have a good eye for people. I mean, they don't seem like the type to just leave in the middle of the night or be out partying so hard that they don't make it back until the morning. The homeowners are two dentists in their mid-40s. They've got a 13-year-old daughter at home. Maybe they're just sleeping in. Maybe they're scrambling to answer the door. Barty reasons with herself. And in the meantime, she's thinking, I'll just be extra efficient. I can go grab the mop from outside. And by the time that I get back, Nooper, the mom of the house, is going to open the door for me. And there she is, standing at the other side of the door. I can't let you in. To get into the Tilvar's house, you need to get past three doors. The first is like an iron grill door, so you can see through it, but it's really heavy. It's almost like a gate. Once you get past that, you walk into a small enclosed hallway with two doors presented in front of you. You've got one on the right that is the door to the live-in staff member's room. So that's Hemraj's room. It connects to the hallway, but also into the main house. Then you have in front of you two more doors. You've got a mesh door. Once you pass through that, there's one final wooden door that you have to pass through, and now you are standing in the residence. Nooper opened the wood door, but not the mesh one. And she's staring at Barty, and she's like, could you open the door for me, please? Like, Hemraj wasn't around. I need to go inside, and I need to clean. Nooper could not open the door. The mesh door has a two-way lock. It can be bolted from the outside meaning Nooper could only unlock the door from the inside, but if someone doesn't have the key from the outside, they can't unlock it from the outside. Both sides need to be unlocked for you to be able to get inside. Someone locked the door from the outside? Yeah, which is normally how it works. Like, I guess they lock themselves in, but they can also open it from the inside. Mm. Like, unlock it. It's a little complicated. So this, you're saying this door requires two, two yes. ways to be unlocked. Yes. So someone locked it from the outside and technically left. Yes. And whoever's inside is being locked inside. Mm. Yes. Hmm. But technically, you could go through Hemraj's room, and oh. then you'll be outside the mesh door, and you could unlock it. Got so it's it. not like you're trapped inside. Hmm. Now, Barty does not have the key. Nooper tells Barty, maybe you can wait until Hemraj gets back. I think that he just went to go get some milk, and then he's going to unlock the door for you. Barty's like, I don't have that kind of time. This is not the only house on my schedule today. I need to get it moving. I'm sure you have another set of keys, Mrs. Tolvar. Could you just toss it out your balcony? I could unlock it and start coming inside and cleaning. I mean, it's not a bad idea, but I wonder if it's an idea that Barty would regret having. 
New Per the mom went up to the balcony and threw the keys down. Barty opens the doors, walks into the home, and suddenly it's chaos. New Per the mom, who had just moments ago tossed her the keys from the balcony, was now hysterical. Rajesh, the father, was banging his head on the wall, and Barty's initial thought was, oh my god, they were robbed. Nupur the mom comes up to Barty, throws her arms around her and starts crying. And she's like, what's wrong? What's wrong, Mrs. Tovar? Is everything okay? Why are you sobbing? Nupur just kept pointing at one of the rooms. Go, go, go inside and see what happened. Barty walked into the room and there laying on her bed was the family's 13-year-old daughter dead with her throat slit from ear to ear. They call this the John Benet Ramsey case of India. In the end, five people will be arrested for her murder. Two convicted, two released, and rumors of wife-swapping parties, blackmail, affairs, honor killings, revenge, and obsessed admirers are just going to start circling the media. The only thing that we know for certain in this case is whoever her killer or her killers are, they are free. So let's get into the locked house mystery of the Noida double murders. We would like to thank today's sponsors who have made it possible for Rotten Mango to support the Joyful Heart Foundation, whose mission is to transform society's response to sexual assault, domestic violence, and child abuse. They work to support survivors' healings and to end this type of violence forever. This episode's partnerships have also made it possible to support Rotten Mango's growing team of dedicated researchers and translators. And we would also like to thank our listeners for your continued support as we work on our mission to be worthy advocates of these causes. As always, full show notes are available at Rotten Mango Podcast. Com. But really quick, before we get started, this case is currently unsolved. There are so many speculations and netizen theories available and pulled from the internet. Almost every case detail can be spun to fit each theory as many of the testimonies and reports have changed over the times. And though there has been no legal resolution at this time that the episode has been published, there was this very informative book on the case by Avruk Sen titled Arushi. Some would argue that his work favors the parent. So with that being said, we have done our best to remain as neutral as possible and have pulled from other sources as well. Our source material was translated by professional researchers. But again, as always, please let us know in the comments if anything is misrepresented or lost in translation. Or if you have any additional information on this case or even just your opinion, I would love to know in the comments. This case also discusses the suspected essay of a minor. So please watch at your own discretion. A lot of the evidence that we talk about today has been tampered with and or contaminated. And even the people who were involved in the collection of evidence, they seem to have strong biases of who they think committed the crimes. So it's really hard to separate the bias from the facts. After thoroughly researching this case with two of our wonderful Urdu-speaking researchers, we still feel like we have no idea who did it. And again, we are not here to persuade, investigate, or push an agenda towards a particular theory. We have no political, emotional, personal, mental skin in the game on this one. We just want to share the facts of this case through purposeful storytelling in hopes of doing both victims justice. So with that being said, have you ever been in one of those murder mystery escape rooms? Oh yeah. We have to go room to room gathering all the clues and only when you solve the mystery can you escape the game, right? May 16, 2008, the Tolvar house had turned into a murder mystery game. 
neighbors, family members, friends, random people who see a commotion outside the house, they just started walking in through the open front door. They start going from room to room. They walk through the entire home, even where 13-year-old Arushi is laying dead in her bed. And they're all gathering their own little clues. It's not fenced off? No. It took the police one hour to arrive at the residence. For that hour, the crime scene was more of like a solve-it-yourself murder mystery game with friends, family, press, neighbors, curious strangers all poking their heads in and investigating what the hell is going on. Some of them even start cleaning up around the house thinking they're helping the grieving family members. They start cleaning while the murdered body of a 13-year-old lay in the next room. They cleaned the house. What's up with the whiskey bottle on the dining room table? It's got little specks of blood on it. Did you see that? That's the thing that alerted Rajesh, the dad, that something was wrong. He woke up from the commotion of Barty trying to get into the house, the housekeeper that morning. He wakes up, he walks out to the dining room, and he sees his bottle of whiskey sitting there. He's like, we all went to sleep at 1130 the night before. None of us drank any whiskey, so that bottle was supposed to be in the cabinet. Why is it out? Immediately, the parents start walking towards Arushi's room, not because they think that she drank the whiskey, but more instinctively than anything. But the very alarming part of this was when they saw that their daughter's room door was open just a crack. Her room door was always locked when she went to sleep. Why was it open? So they make a run for it. They run into her room and their only child, their precious daughter, had been murdered while they slept nine feet away. Nine feet away? In their bedroom. Arushi was dead in her bed, and everything about this crime scene was horrific. There was blood splattered all over the walls. Her pillow was soaked in blood, and the blood was now dripping onto the floor. Arushi was laying in her bed, almost entirely covered by her colorful blankets, and her head was covered by her school tote bag. Arushi's parents reached and pulled the bag back, and her forehead was crushed by some sort of blunt force trauma to the head. Her throat had been slit from ear to ear. There was so much blood that Arushi's dad would later think to himself that his child, his only child, looked like a red doll. And immediately, two things were very noticeable. One, Arushi's phone that she had always kept on her nightstand was now missing. Two, there were small plushies arranged on Arushi's bed that did not have blood splatter on them. Whoever did this to Arushi put the little stuffed dolls next to her dead, dying body after they murdered her. So there's blood splatter underneath the dolls. Mm. Meaning if the dolls had already been there, they would have gotten blood on them. Yeah, yeah. But someone had placed it on top of the blood. What kind of doll is that? Like little stuffed rabbits. The guests are walking around. Did you notice the water spot underneath her body? It's like someone tried to clean her or something. You think they tried to clean her? It was right underneath her pelvis area. Well, I searched practically every inch of this house. There were no signs of a break-in anywhere, so whoever did this also knew the family well. Speaking of, I think it's the live-in staff member. Again, the guests, I don't know if you can even call them that, they start sharing their theories about Hemraj, the live-in staff member of the house. It all, if you connect the dots, it all leads back to him. Like the whiskey bottle on the dining table. What if, what if the live-in staff member, Hemraj, got super drunk and decided to essay Arushi? He snuck into her room, started assaulting her, and when she woke up and started fighting back, he was so scared that she was going to tell her parents he killed her. 
I mean, that explains the whiskey bottle, the wet spot underneath Arushi. Maybe he tried to wash off the evidence of any, you know, bodily fluids that he could have left behind in her pelvic region. And the dolls. I mean, only someone who felt bad after their crime would have left the dolls. Like, it's someone that knew Arushi personally. Why else would they do that? Maybe a personal connection that shows remorse. Additionally, there were a few more things that pointed to Hemraj's involvement. One, he lived in the house, so he could have easily gone into Arushi's room to murder her. There were no signs of a break-in, and Arushi's parents didn't have any guests over the night before. Two, earlier that morning, Arushi's parents had called Hemraj. Someone picked up the phone and then hung up. They didn't say anything. It was weird. So the parents called back, and the phone was now turned off, which is just very suspicious. Oh, And number three, Hemraj was now missing. He was nowhere to be found, and it wouldn't be the first time that the killer fled the scene of a crime. Once you step into the Dasna jail, you feel like you've been transported to a different world. I mean, they say that time stops. You lose all sense of identity. You just become a number. You wait in line, and the payoff to this waiting is an aggressive frisking. They pat you up and down. They search all of your holes. Barrack number seven, bed number 60. But there's no bed. You walk into your cell and it's just a stone floor. It's a giant, empty, cold room with so many half-naked people crammed inside with nowhere to go. I mean, there's hardly enough room to move. All you get with you is a single sheet. Not even a blanket or a pillow, a sheet. And the first night that you're there, you have no plans to use this sheet. Because it smells, it reeks of like a nasty, pungent sewage scent but then you realize you have no choice. It is the only thing that you can put over your face that keeps the mosquitoes and the flies from biting you and crawling into your nose and mouth. And at night, maybe there's a semblance of privacy. You're like, okay, everyone has their sheets covering their face, so maybe I can get up and quietly make my way to the toilet. But then you get to the corner, there is no toilet. It's just a layer of feces all over the floor. Rajesh, Arushi's dad said, That was the moment he puked, his very first night in prison. The day Rajesh Tovar, Arushi's dad, had been arrested, he was screaming, I'm being framed, I'm being framed, it wasn't me, you have to believe me, I'm being framed. The police might have believed him, had just one body been found in his house. But when there's two bodies found dead in your house, you know, people start to wonder, because there's no such things as coincidences. May 17th, 2008, just 24 hours after his daughter Arushi was found dead, Arushi's parents were out of the house taking Arushi's ashes so that she could be laid to rest. Rajesh's brother was watching the house, I mean, the crime scene, as they're out, and while the couple were in the car, they get a phone call. You need to come back home. They found him. 45-year-old Hemraj's body was found on the family's terrace. He was found beaten and with a slit throat, murdered on the terrace. He was not a suspect. He was another victim. He had been murdered the night before at the same time that Urushi had been killed. And he's found on the roof? On the terrace, the balcony. Oh, oh to terrace. Okay, yeah. I see. The parents U-turn it, they rush back home, they park the car, but only Rajesh gets out. Hindu custom forbids the re-entry of the ashes into the home, so Nupur, the mom, she stayed outside in the car with Arushi's ashes. Rajesh rushes into the house, up to the terrace, and the police are surrounding him. Can you please ID this man? Is this Hemraj? Is this your employee? I... I don't know. You don't know if this is your live-in staff member that you've been living with for the past almost a year? 
Rajesh pulls out his phone and calls his wife, who's waiting for him downstairs. Hey, um, did Hemraj have a t-shirt that says New York on it? A lot of people said Rajesh, the dad, was a little weird. I mean, the day before, before anyone knew that Hemraj was dead on the terrace, when people arrived at the house to investigate Arushi's murder, Rajesh was just screaming at them. You have to find him. His name is Hemraj. He's been living with us as a live-in staff member. He did this. He did this to my child. So go hurry and find him. Side note, the parents didn't even call the police themselves. They called their friends and family first to come to the house. And once they all gathered inside the crime scene, went from room to room, contaminating everything, whether it was intentional or not is up for debate. But only then did one of them think, we got to call the police. So they grabbed the security guard of the residential neighborhood. And then that security guard called the police. Now, there are some other sources that say, no, Barty, the housekeeper, said, I'm going to go run and find the security guard. And it took her a while. And that's why the police didn't get there until after all the friends and family arrived. But people thought it was strange nonetheless. Because wouldn't the first thing you do as a parent is call the police yourself? The second thing about Rajesh and the parents was that they never tried to resuscitate their daughter. At least there's no evidence of it. The crime scene, their daughter was covered in blood, and yet the parents had no blood on them. And sure, you could argue that they're medical professionals, they're dentists, and they can tell just by looking at her that it's way too late. But if that's your child, usually you don't care about logic, no? You'll do whatever it takes to save them? They didn't even take her body to the hospital in case there was this slight chance of saving her that she was breathing. Also, some said Rajesh, the dad's reaction to seeing his child murdered was... Kind of odd. He just told everybody that he needed to go find Hemraj. Sometimes he would walk around room to room in a trance-like state and he would just say, Hemraj, Hemraj. And then he would pace and then bang his head up against the wall and it was just, Hemraj, they gotta find Hemraj. They even offered the police cash, straight up cash money to go search for Hemraj. Meanwhile, authorities found bloodstains on the stairway up to the terrace. And I'm assuming it's not an alarming amount, but a little bit of blood, like little specks of blood. They follow the blood droppings up the flight of stairs, straight to the terrace door. They grab the handle. It's locked. They go to Rajesh, the dad. They're like, where's the key to the terrace? And he's like, I don't know. I mean, it's locked from the inside, but I don't know where the key is. Usually Hemraj keeps the key. So I don't know what to do. And he's like, it doesn't really matter, though. I don't know why you're wasting time trying to check the terrace when we know it's Hemraj who did this. So go find Hemraj. He ran away after killing my child. Oh, this is when the police first time at the scene. Yes. And they never checked the terrace. terrace. The first 24 hours, they don't check the terrace. And Rajesh, the dad, is like, forget the terrace. Go find Hemraj. But Hemraj will be found on the terrace. Mm -hmm. Surprisingly, the police just stopped bothering with the bloody locked terrace and started the hunt for Hemraj. The day after Arushi's body was found, the commotion at the house had died down and everyone had shuffled out with their own little theory of what they believed happened. The Talvars were very busy having their daughter autopsied and cremated, so a family member was staying at their house, which, you know, a lot of people thought it was strange. They wondered, why were the parents so quick to cremate the body of their only child who was clearly murdered? Would they not have wanted to preserve her body for more evidence to catch the killer? But there's a knock on the door. Retired police officer G was standing there. 
Retired police officer G had inserted himself into this whole case yesterday. When everybody was in that house looking at Arushi's dead body, he had walked in. He's not even on the force anymore, but he's like, I'm bored. I want to solve a murder. Let's do it. He ends up causing more trouble than it's worth. But anyway, I digress. Retired officer G shows up at the house the next day, 24 hours later. And he's like, I just want to check up on everyone and everything and see if everything's all right. Because he's a retired police officer, the family member lets him in. Now, again, the parents are not in the house. So this is just a relative. And G is like, oh, yeah. Did you guys uh, ever get that terrace unlocked? Oh, no. The police yesterday said something about getting a locksmith here, but they never did. Well, can I take a look? Sure. Officer G walks up to the terrace area and starts pinpointing all of the strange things that, I mean, some of them were discovered yesterday. But he's like, the lock has a bit of blood on it. There are stains that suggest that someone or something has been dragged through the door, perhaps. That's what it looks like. But I don't know. I feel like we need to get into this terrace. He calls the police force back in and they finally break through the lock, run out into the terrace. And in the corner is Hemraj's dead body. He still had his slippers on his feet and he was badly decomposing. It was clear that someone made an attempt to make sure that Hemraj's body was not noticeable from the terrace door. On one side of Hemraj's body was the cooler panel, which is like a foamy rectangular board that covers him. On the other side, a sheet was hanging to cover Hemraj from the other neighbor's view. But probably the most alarming was when authorities did their rounds talking to everybody who knew the family, Rajaish's assistant had a lot to say. He's like, oh, you found Hemraj's body? Well, let me tell you something. So the assistant is 22-year-old Krishna. He is the couple's assistant at the dental clinic. And he's like, okay, first of all, the dental clinic is owned by the Tolvars and another couple. The two couples are really close. They both have daughters. Their daughters are best friends. They're like besties. Everything they do together, they're super tight-knit, both families. Perhaps too tight-knit. Krishna claims Rajesh, Arushi's dad, is having an affair with the wife of the other couple. He's sleeping with his business partner, his daughter's best friend's mom, and his wife's best friend. He said, Rajesh Tolvar is a cheater. So the police theory starts to emerge. The theory goes, Arushi found her dad cheating on her mom. With her mom's best friend of all people, the wife of the couple that co-owns the clinic with them, Arushi's best friend's mom. Arushi finds out, tells her dad, you gotta come clean to mom, okay? But he refuses. Arushi wants to teach him a lesson, wants to retaliate, to make him feel the pain that she's feeling. So Arushi, according to the police, starts sleeping with Hemraj, the family's 45-year-old live-in staff member. That's what the police are saying. That is not a theory that I have, okay? It's insane that that's the, the theory they came up with. Like, I mean, we're going to dissect all of this later, but it's such a deplorable theory. And it, I mean, it's so unacceptable on both ends to Arushi as a victim, but also to Hemraj as a victim. It makes Hemraj out to be this creepy guy that would absolutely be down to engage in activities with a 13-year-old when everyone who knew him said that he had a father-daughter relationship with her. Even Arushi's grandparents said, Hemraj treated Arushi like one of his own kids. But the investigators, they pushed on this theory, which is that night, Arushi was in bed with Hemraj in her bedroom when the dad walked in on her and found them in this suggestive position. And he was so overcome with rage and the threat that this would ruin their family name that he killed them. 
Side note, at one point, the theory that Hemraj and Arushi were intimately involved was so widely rejected by the public that the authorities would kind of tweak it later to state, actually, we change our mind. Hemraj was the one that knew about Rajesh's affair and they he started blackmailing him. Rajesh, the dad, went to go kill Hemraj, but his daughter Arushi witnessed the whole thing, wanted to report him, so he had to kill his own daughter. The theory would change back and it would revert back to, oh no, father catches both of them in suggestive position in bed and murders them both. Yet for some reason, the police keep coming back to the wild theory of this adulterous father and sexually free 13-year-old daughter. I mean, it's a story of revenge, sex, and a middle-class family of dentists doing the most insane things. And the media was absolutely hooked. They... They did not want to touch anything that was borderline slanderous. They wanted straight up defamation. They're like, we don't even want the middle ground. We want the most heinous, insane stories out there. Like, that's what we're hunting for. The police talked to a close male friend of Arushi's without the consent of his parents, might I add, because he's a minor. And he would later state that he was so scared when he was talking to the police that he just wanted to give them whatever they wanted. And what they wanted, for some strange, bizarre reason, was for someone to say that 13-year-old Arushi was, quote, easy. That she was, quote, easy with her affections. The authorities started releasing all of Arushi's personal messages, or at least the ones that proved that she was, quote, characterless. I mean, I can't even tell you that they're bad. Like, I wish I could be like, oh, maybe this is why the police did this. Otherwise, I just don't understand how they can be so evil, right? They're not even bad. Not that that would be excusable, but if anything, these are the types of messages that people will cringe over later in life. Arushi wrote on Facebook, hmm, you hate me. I know it's my fault. I'm such a freaking slut. I know. Even the way she typed it out, it's very childish. Like she typed out no as K-N-O-E. Like, and I don't think that she's actually calling herself a slut because she's intimate with other people. But it's just like, oh, you know, I'm such a hoe. Like, like that. But the media just ran with it. They're like, look, she admits herself that she's addicted to intimacy and she's a little temptress. They did not report heavily on the fact that she was just a teenager who hung out with her friends and they would make jokes like this. All of them would talk like this. Her and her friends called themselves the awesome foursome, but that doesn't fit the narrative. The media had to keep up with the idea that they're just sluts, all of them. A lot of people close to Arushi said it felt like the media was making her out to be some sort of 35-year-old. The way they talked about her, you would never assume that they're talking about a 13-year-old child. This is the same girl that without fail would forward all the chain mail that she got in her emails. You know, the challenges that's like, if you send this to your top 10 friends, you're going to get a kiss from the love of your life. And if you don't, you'll be cursed forever. She's sending those. She's 13. She's a literal child. I mean, clearly when she calls herself a slut, she's just joking with her friends. It's not that serious. This is the same girl that wrote in her letter for Santa that year. Dear Santa, Merry Christmas. I know you're tired from running here and there giving children everything they want, but I just want something totally different. I want the well-being of my family. My second wish is that I want my parents to always be with me and my friends too. My third wish is a bit silly. I want a dog and I wish my parents will agree. Merry Christmas. At one point, Arushi's parents were asked, what kind of blanket does Arushi use? They said, a blue bedsheet with Disney print on it. Nobody liked that. They were like, no, that doesn't fit our narrative. She's a skank. There was a press conference where the police straight up call Arushi by another name. Like, it wasn't even a nickname or anything. They just, like, it seems like the police really dropped the ball on this one. And that's to say it lightly. They completely ruined it. And as for Hemraj, 
he wasn't even considered in the media. He's not even really considered a victim in the media. That's why we have such little information on him. He's just the guy that worked for the Tovars. He ends up dead, and most likely he engaged in relations with a 13-year-old temptress if you listen to the police theory. Nobody focused on the fact that he has a wife and three kids back in Nepal and that he only worked for the Tovars so that he could send practically every single penny of his earnings back to his family to support them. He earned about $60 to $72 a month and he sent it all back to his family. Everyone who knew Hemraj said that he was such a mild-mannered, kind, even-tempered man. He worked so diligently. He wouldn't even look at you in the eyes while talking to you because he was a little shy. Hemraj wasn't even supposed to be working for the Tolvars. His friend was their live-in staff member. But his friend was going on vacation, so he's like, hey, Hemraj, can you please go work for me? Fill in for me for a few weeks. Hemraj starts working there, and the Tolvars are like, we like you better. Can you work for us? They loved the way that he treated Arushi like his own daughter. I mean, nobody wanted to talk about that. The fact that he worked so hard every day to make delicious food for Arushi, he wanted her to eat more vegetables and traditional food because all she really ate were pizza and she would eat out all the time. So he would try to make his dishes more enticing. Nobody cared about that. I mean, none of that mattered. He was basically invisible in this case, and it's really hard to find more information about him out there. The news outlets never called out the cops on their wild behavior. Instead, they fully embraced it. There was one TV anchor that soaked his hands in red paint before going on air to show and emphasize that someone's got blood on their hands. I will say, I don't know what the police or the press are on because the public were outraged with everything that's going on in the news. One close friend of Arushi stated, I remember staring at the screens and hearing screaming headlines about the adulterous affair between Arushi and Hemraj. I mean, all of this is absolutely untrue and ridiculous. It was so surreal and absurd, but no one cared. They flashed those headlines the next morning after my 14-year-old classmate was murdered. Arushi's friends and classmates held protests. They believed the victims were being killed twice, this time by the media. I mean, what is the reason for such baseless character assassinations? Everyone's running with the theory that the dad found 13-year-old Arushi and the 45-year-old staff member Hemraj in a compromising position, then the dad murdered them out of pure anger and to protect the family honor. Where is the proof in that? Both Arushi and Hemraj are gone. The dad said that never happened. Do the police and media have evidence to back it up? How are they so confident that this is the truth? You are being lied to about truth serum. Well, maybe they could just use truth serum. The United States, as well as a handful of other countries, including India, have been using truth serum in criminal cases and allegedly intelligence investigations for decades. Most of the time, it's reserved for high-profile cases, and it's only used, allegedly, with the explicit consent from the accused. It takes almost a week to test a single person. It's incredibly invasive. True Serum Administration, or they call it narco-testing, it feels like you're getting ready for bed. Once you're inside this hospital-looking room, a nurse comes in, checks your vitals, takes your blood pressure, and then provides you with the instructions. Change into the hospital gown, crawl into the patient bed, lay all the way back, get comfy, you know, the test is going to take a while. Your stomach is going to be a little growly, nausea can be a side effect, so we, we like to have you fast before the actual testing. 
So you lay down in the hospital bed with the blanket pulled up, and this is where things get very weird. A tripod and camera will be set up at the head of your bed, pointed straight at your face so that you're being recorded the whole time. A nurse will begin an IV so that the doctor has direct access to your bloodstream, and one by one, everyone will take their places. The psychiatrist will be present to monitor your psychological changes. You'll have a police investigator who will be there asking all the questions. And finally, the doctor will arrive with the truth serum. And then you enter the twilight zone. The doctor starts pushing the first dose into your IV and right into your bloodstream. It's pretty much a sci-fi serum that you think about when you hear the phase truth serum. Like, that's what it sounds like. A lot of the drugs used in the truth serum are just anesthetics. or They're basically drugs that put you to sleep, that force you into a state of unconsciousness. If you're having surgery, you'll get some of this. Now, too much truth serum, you go completely under. You're knocked out. You're not talking to anybody. You can't listen to anybody. You're gone. Now, if you get too much of even that, then you're dead. But too little true serum, your brain is still way too conscious and you can think about the questions being asked. You can think about how you're going to filter your thoughts. The twilight zone is the name for the sweet spot in the middle, a sort of purgatory. Each dose depends on the size, metabolism, and a whole bunch of other factors relative to each person, but there's always a twilight zone for each person where they can answer full open-ended questions, but they lose the ability to filter their thoughts. They lose the ability to think about, wait, is this going to help me if I say this or is this going to hurt me? They're almost delirious. They just say whatever's on their mind. Michael Stevens, also known as Vsauce on YouTube, did a minefield episode where he was injected with true serum in a low stakes form of narcoanalysis testing, and he described what it felt like throughout the entire procedure. He said with each dose, he fell deeper and deeper into this twilight zone. He said, I'm feeling warm all over, just all over, so warm. I feel like in order to feel like this, I would have to have six alcoholic beverages. I feel kind of drunk. At a certain point, I feel like I'm going to go unconscious. Full immersion in the twilight zone is like a hypnotic trance. You lose all critical thinking and basically the concept of time doesn't even exist. Your doctor will continue to monitor you as the officer or police investigator starts asking you questions. And they start off really easy just to see if you're there. What's your full government name? Who's the current president of the United States? When Michael Stevens reached this point in the true serum experiment, he said, I don't remember anything after them asking me who the president was. But that's the scary part. They could have told me that I said anything and I wouldn't know if they're telling the truth or not. I didn't know how much time had passed and I was forming memories all again. I mean, all of a sudden. It's like he had no memories and then all of a sudden he woke up and started forming memories again. It's just a time block. Gone. But he was awake. He was talking to them. Afterwards, they'll advance you into the actual case interrogation. And unlike a polygraph test that only consists of like yes or no answers, if done correctly, narcoanalysis tests allow for open-ended questions. Vsauce said, once you hit that final stage, it feels like death. That's what it's like to be dead, he said. I mean, I wasn't asleep. I wasn't awake. It's not painful. I was just like dead. I felt dead, and then I was born again when they gave me the antidote. It was a very different crisp change when they injected the antidote. It wasn't like, ah, oh, that was restful. It was like a dreamless sleep of non-existence, and then suddenly I wasn't dead anymore. But I could have been dead. You could have told me that I died in that moment, and I would have said, I know. I could tell. Hmm, interesting. So it's not even like falling asleep. No. It's 
he's like trying to describe it into like a it's a weird existence almost like you're dead but you're not dead you lose the ability to form memories but then you wake up but you don't feel like you went to sleep and then you wake up and you're like i mean i honestly could have been dead but you're there when you're dead he even said to the police investigator i didn't realize that you were still a real person asking me questions at one point so it sounds maybe like a dream Not really, but like put every suspect under true serum and we're going to have a crimeless society. What a dream. But nothing is ever that simple. True serum will weaken the brain's inhibitions, but lying and even leading can still occur. It's like a polygraph. People can still pass when they're lying and you can still fail even when you're telling the truth. And in this case, true serum would lead to the arrest of three more people. So Rajesh was arrested. They start going back and asking other people about other things that they saw. Now, there are speculations that after Rajesh was arrested, the CBI took over from the police and the CBI wanted Rajesh out of prison. It's a speculation that Rajesh and the Tolvars had a lot of influence. So in order to get Rajesh out of prison, what do you need? You need people to take his spot. That's the speculation. Now, I would say that India is pretty split half and half. Some people think that this next theory is the truth. Some people think that Rajesh did it is the truth. So let's get into it. Retired Officer G, remember the one that injected himself into the crime scene? All of that, right? He said, I paid special attention to Hemraj's room that day. Because, you know, without being asked, I conducted a formal inspection and I found a lot of things. Depressions on Hemraj's mattress that indicated that three people had sat on his mattress the night before. There were three glasses in his room, two of them containing some kind of alcohol. There was sodas, a bottle of whiskey that was empty in his room. And interestingly enough, that leads to the question, did Hemraj have guests over the night before? Retired Officer G then made his way to the restroom where he found an even more alarming clue. The toilet was stinky. It was a mess. It looked like at least three people had peed into the toilet. For certain, more than a singular person had used that toilet recently. The conclusion of retired officers' informal formal inspection was that Hemraj had guests over the night of the murders. There were other people in the house. So who were they? If we go with this theory, who was in the house that night? Hemraj, the Telvar's live-in staff member, Krishna, the Tolvar's assistant at the dental clinic, Raj Kumar, the live-in staff member of the couple's best friend. So remember the co-owner of the dental clinic? He's their hemorrhage. Uh-huh. His name is Raj Kumar. He was over, allegedly, right? And it kind of makes sense how these three would all know each other. Hemraj and Krishna were tied to the Tolvar family. Raj Kumar worked for the family's best friend. So they're obviously, they run in the same circles. But there was a fourth person that was speculated to have been there that night. Vijay. He worked as a live-in staff member for a neighbor. So maybe he ran into them while working and they all formed some sort of friendship. I will say that he's the least important person in this theory. Some variations of this theory don't even include him at all. And he does have a pretty airtight alibi. So he's just kind of a side character more than anything. So we're not just going to, we're going to kind of disclude him. And the reason that the CBI was very suspicious of these three men was Krishna was the assistant that was brought in early on. He was interviewed and Krishna was the one that was like, oh yeah, Rajesh is a cheater. So they thought it was kind of suspicious. Then they heard a rumor that Krishna actually hated the Tovars because recently Dr. Rajesh had scolded him, had yelled at him, embarrassed him in front of all the patients for making an incorrect dental mold. So maybe this was his revenge. 
they bring Krishna in into this hospital looking room, but it has like this operation theater in it, meaning people can sit there and watch him as he lay helplessly on the patient bed. And they were going to be injecting him with truth serum. Yeah. If Krishna was scared watching this whole performance of the doctor getting the needle ready, getting the liquid into the needle, he would not be scared anymore once the true serum kicked in. He would feel serene, a sense of at least temporary deadness. Then he would feel very talkative, like he would want to talk and talk without a filter and say whatever was the first thing on his mind. And now investigators tried to fill the gaps. Krishna's brain allegedly told investigators that, well, first they said that he was very deceptive and manipulative and that he was loyal to nobody. During the truth serum interrogation, he stated a few things. A, he, Rajkumar, and Vijay were all present the night of the murder. B, Dr. Rajesh had nothing to do with the murders. And C, he witnessed Rajkumar killing both Arushi and Hermaj that night. Rajkumar, the other couple's assistant, would be brought in and he would say, well, actually, I was there that night, but it wasn't me that killed them. It was Krishna. Rajkumar also admits to being in love with Arushi. Okay, so the three people right now, what's going on? They're pointing fingers at each other? They're just like, I was there. Like, they get under the truth serum and they're like, oh yeah, I was there. And then they're saying, this happened. Yeah, we killed them, basically. Is their story matching with each other? Only that they were all there and that mm. they were all drinking that night. Mm. But then the story starts splitting off and getting weird. There's actually a lot of differences between their stories under the truth serum. But the minute that all of them were no longer under the influence of the truth serum, they recanted everything and stated, we were never in that house the night of the murders. We were home, asleep, in bed. And a lot of them actually had alibis from their own employers that they were asleep in bed that night. So this is getting very confusing and weird. So what is the theory? There's two sequences of events in this theory, and I'm just going to go through one of the most widely believed ones because there's just small variations and it would just be too tedious. In one version, Rajkumar, the family friend's assistant, is the main offender. In another version, Krishna, the Tolvar's dental assistant, is the main offender. So let's explore the new CBI theory that they claim they got from the suspects while they were under the influence of the truth serum. Krishna, the dental assistant, and Rajkumar, the family friend staff member, had gone over to the Tolvar house to drink. Now, since most of them work all day long, at night is the only time that they can blow off some steam. And since Hemraj's room has a door that leads straight to the gate door, they don't have to go through the house family front door. It's very easy to gather in Hemraj's room. Now, the three of them are in Hemraj's room and they already drank through the beer and wine that they brought and they're getting dry. They drank it all. They turn to Hemraj and they're begging, hey, convincing him, like, can you go into the family liquor cabinet and just grab the good whiskey? You could just replace it with water tomorrow. They'll literally never know. They don't even drink that much. So please just grab the good whiskey. Hemraj isn't even drinking. He doesn't even drink much, but he agrees. He leaves the room and quietly goes into the kitchen and he leaves the two of them, Krishna and Raj Kumar, to their own devices. And they start talking about how much they like Arushi and all the things that they would like to do to her. Technically, now is the time. Hemraj is busy in the kitchen grabbing the whiskey. I mean, when else are they going to have time alone in this house? Arushi is in the next room over asleep. They could just get in there right now and do what they need to do. 
So they sneak out of Hanraj's room, sneak past the kitchen, and they see two doors. One would lead to the Tovar parents, and the other would lead to Arushi's room. And in a crazy twist of coincidences, Arushi's door room was open a crack. Her door room is never open a crack. Arushi's room door worked like a hotel door. You need a key to get inside from the outside. So the parents had the key. Every night they would lock her room door. So unless you had the key, you can't open the door into Arushi's room. But just like a hotel, if Arushi wanted to get out, she could open the door and get out. Usually, the Tolvar parents are really diligent about keeping that door locked at night, but because they were having internet router problems and the internet router was in Arushi's room, they stated that they kept going in there to fix it and they had, according to this theory, left the key in the keyhole and just went to bed. Now the room door is open a crack. They see Arushi peacefully asleep in her bed. They sneak into her room, close the door behind her, jump on top of her in the bed. Arushi immediately wakes up and she goes to scream, but they cover her mouth and they start assaulting her. She flings around trying to break free from them. All of her stuffed animals on, and belongings on the bed start falling off everywhere. Eventually, she becomes overpowered. Not that she had a choice. According to this theory, the two guys had brought with them a Kukri, which is a type of Nepali knife that was primarily used for fighting. It's usually around 10 to 18 inches long. The handle is very interesting. It doesn't look like a regular knife handle. It kind of has this rounded butt at the end, which is supposed to make it easier to grip so that if you're pushing into something, the handle won't slide out of your hand. But it also means that the base of this handle is pretty blunt. Like you could probably do some damage slamming it down on something. The knife has origins as a fighting weapon used in combat. There's actually a saying that you cannot put a kukri back into its sheath until you've drawn blood. So every time you take it out, you better make someone bleed. The theory continues that these two men threatened her with this knife. She was so scared that she agreed to keep quiet. She just wanted to get everything over with ASAP so she could get help. And at this point, one of the men pulled down her pajamas to essay her. Now she's panicking again because she realizes what they're trying to do, really. And when she goes to scream again, they slam the butt of the knife down on her head, the handle, rendering her unconscious. She's knocked out on the bed. The two guys are starting to realize and they're sobering up like this is no longer fun. We're about to go to jail for a very long time. And Hemraj places the whiskey on the dining table because he thinks he hears something. He pauses. He realizes, oh my God, the noises are coming from Arushi's room. He goes into his room to check and sure enough, the guys are gone. He runs as quickly as possible to Arushi's room door and he's standing outside of it and he's whispering. He's pleading with them to just let him in because he can't, he can't, you know, he doesn't know what's going on inside and he's scared to scream. He doesn't want to wake up the parents. So he's just like, please let me in. What are you doing in there? He just keeps begging with them to let him in. And the door slowly opens. He sees Arushi on the bed. His eyes go wide. He's about to scream, but they cover his mouth, drag him over to Arushi's bed and calm him down. They put his hand under his nose. See, she's still breathing. Calm down. We can fix it. We just need to think straight for a second. But just in case, they clean up the scene. I mean, what if the parents check in on Arushi in the middle of the night? They open the door just to check that she's still laying in bed. They need to make sure that they don't see any blood. So they cover up her with a blanket, throw a fabric tote on top of her head, and await the assault. They grab a mug of water, pull down her pants, wash her privates. They set up the toys so that it seems like Arushi is just flinging around in her sleep, but nothing alarming has happened. Because the tote bag is on top of her head. But like, you know, if you've got all these stuffed animals on the ground, maybe they'd investigate. 
Then they ask Hemraj to go to the terrace to game plan what they're going to do next. Hemraj guides them up the stairs to the terrace, unlocks it, slips the key back into his pocket, and now the three of them are standing in the night air whispering about what the hell are we going to do. Hemraj is pissed. He wants to come clean to the Tolvars now because, yeah, I mean, he's probably going to lose his job, but that doesn't mean... That doesn't mean anything, really, because if they these two guys leave, he's going to lose everything. He's going to go to jail. It's going to seem like he's the one that did this. But Krishna and Rajkumar cannot have that, now can they? So a fight breaks out. The two men grab the flat end of the knife and they hit Hemraj on the head with it, just as they did with Arushi. Then they slice his throat with the blade of the knife from ear to ear. They leave his body on the terrace, they grab his key from the lock, and they lock the door behind them. They also grab his phone. Now, they just need to make sure that Arushi is 100% dead. They walk into her room, she's unconscious, but to be 100% sure, they slice her neck with this knife. The same thing that they did with Hemraj. They rush out of there, they start freaking about what, what they need to do. They think the smartest thing is to stay in town, they don't have the funds to go on the run, and if they do, it's just gonna make them look even more suspicious. So the game plan is to implicate the Tolvars. So when Krishna was brought in to be interviewed, he tells the authorities, Rajesh was having an affair with his business partner. But what kind of motive is that? Like, what does that even do? Yeah, I guess it's just an essay motive. Drunk essay motive. Now, there had been three main investigating teams on this case. So first, the police come in and they butcher everything. They butcher the crime scene. They butcher finding the body on the terrace. They screw up so royally that they're quickly taken off of it. And the case gets transferred to the CBI, which is India's version of the FBI. The first CBI team that takes over, they actually release Rajesh, the dad from prison, in favor of the theory that, th- that the three staff members did it. And had they stayed on that case, it's likely that everything would have played out differently. These guys would probably be in jail. But they were replaced by another CBI team. And they did not believe that these three guys had anything to do with it. They felt like the first CBI team just wanted to take the easy way out. Either A, the staff members are just staff members while the dentists are from a different socioeconomic class. So just to throw these three men in jail is going to keep the peace and everyone's belief on how the world works. Protect the ones with and forget the ones without. That kind of mentality. The three men being Nepali were also a very big part of this case. Protests started happening in the Nepali communities because of the arrest. People believed that they were being discriminated against for being Nepali and for being domestic servants. And as a result, they were being forced into confessing for a crime that they didn't even commit. Another detail is there's not even evidence that these people were close. It's almost assumed by the police because they're three Nepali and they're domestic helpers. So they must be friends. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. What is the evidence behind that? There's, this whole story. Yeah, there's not much evidence. I mean, there's no evidence that they were close enough to be even drinking that night. There's zero evidence that they were coordinating a meetup that night. There's no phone calls, no text messages, nothing. I mean, the three men, they had pretty solid alibis that night. I mean, many of them were backed up by their employers who had nothing to gain by protecting their employees. Hmm. Additionally, true serum tests are like polygraphs. They can't even be used in court. You know, there's also the implication that the CBI pressured the three to take the fall for the murders. In Krishna's interrogation, he states under the influence of truth serum that he was pressured to take the fall for this crime. Then he immediately takes back what he said and begs the interrogator not to bring it up again in front of the lead of the CBI. 
like the lead investigator on this case. Wait, what do you mean not to bring it up again? Because he's scared. Because that's per- probably the one allegedly who told him that you're going to take the fall for this. So he said it. And then he's like, don't tell him I said that. Don't tell him I said that, basically. What? And even during the true serum interrogation, the interrogator asked pretty leading questions. I mean, yeah, I mean, I would say they're kind of leading. And they had to stop pretty abruptly in the middle of this true serum test because Krishna's pulse almost started dropping and essentially he almost died. Yeah. Also, there's theories and allegations that the first CBI team was replaced because the Tolvars were influencing them. What do you mean by that? They're being influenced. That the Tovars had connections with the CBI team. Maybe they were bribing them. Maybe they were promising them things once everything was over. And the CBI team was like, you're right. I don't think it's you. You guys are good dentists. Let me find a different solution. The defense attorneys for Krishna, the dental assistant, and Raj Kumar, the other family's assistant, claimed the setting of Hemraj's room was tampered with and that evidence was planted to make the two men look guilty and free the Tolvar parents from any sort of doubt. And this is going to be the same way later with the two parents, but two things can be true at once, so just keep that in mind. The three men could technically be guilty or innocent, and the investigators could be horrendous at their job. So I just don't want anyone to think that when I am pointing out horrendous investigation skills, I'm like trying to use that as proof that someone is innocent or guilty. I'm just saying the investigators were dumb, point blank. Like regardless of who's guilty, who's not, they really fumbled it on this one. And it was really bad. One of the biggest pieces of evidence that the authorities had on these three guys was that they stated that they found hemorrhage the victim's blood on krishna the dental assistant's pillowcase at his house so krishna went home with all this blood on him and then laid on his bed and now there's hemorrhage's blood on his pillowcase mm-hmm. but later that was discovered that it was just mislabeled they found hemorrhage's the victim's blood on the victim's pillowcase in the victim's room So they just accidentally wrote that it was in Krishna, the dental assistant's room. That's a huge difference, though. Like a massive, that's that's not even the same universe. I don't even think you can make that kind of mistake at a dentist's office. Yeah. Like just writing people's name over each other. Like There was also no evidence to tie the three men to the scene of the crime. No fingerprints, no car records. The urine that was allegedly in the toilet wasn't even tested. So truly, nothing puts these three men at the scene except parts of their true serum test that could have easily been manipulated so once the second cbi team takes over they were firm on the belief that the parents were the killers and that these three men had nothing to do with it and they're gonna pivot their investigation back onto the tovar parents but first a new piece of information completely sidetracks them in a different direction because what if what if it wasn't the parents what if it wasn't the three men what if it was someone else entirely AJ Chada, who we're just going to call AJ, was a close family friend of the Tolvars, the parents. And he had been one of the many that crowded into that apartment on the days that Arushi and Hemraj were both found dead. He was doing everything that he could help the parents, the couple. I mean, they were grieving. And sometimes that included house-sitting, the crime scene. The day after Arushi was found dead, but before Hemraj was found on the terrace, AJ was house-sitting. So he's alone in this house. And he hears a knock on the door. He opens the front door and there's like four people standing in front of him. It's like a man and three women and they introduce themselves as detectives. And they're like, we're back to investigate the crime scene. And more specifically, we're back to investigate Arushi's room. 
Now, this is an active crime scene, but AJ still didn't really feel that comfortable being the one to make that type of call. His job, after all, is to house sit while the parents are gone. So he lets them into the living room because he's under the impression, you know, like these are detectives, they're back the next day, right? He tries to call the parents, the couple. They're not picking up. So he's like, I don't know. I don't want to let you guys into the room because that's where their child was murdered. So can you guys just like hang tight? So they sit around in the living room. And he thought that they were going to leave. And they'd be like, we're just going to come back. But they keep sitting around. They keep loitering, basically, until one of the women stands up and is like, can I use the restroom? AJ's like, well, I can't not let her. He shows her to the guest bathroom that you can open the door through the living room. And minutes go by. And then the second woman is like, can I use the restroom? AJ's like, well, there's not another. Well, maybe there is. In the guest room, there's a bathroom. So they walk into the guest room. He opens the bathroom door and she goes in. She spends like 15 minutes in that bathroom. I mean, both women spend like 15 minutes in the bathroom, which may sound completely normal until you find out that there's actually another way into Arushi's room. The guest bathroom is connected to Arushi's bedroom. So you can technically get into Arushi's room, even if it's locked. You can walk in through the guest bedroom, walk in through the bathroom, open the door, and you are in Arushi's bedroom. So if someone wanted to come in and out of Arushi's room without passing through that self-locking door that was or maybe was not locked that day, there was another way. So essentially, the possibilities of what happened that night doubled, if not then, to an infinite amount of possibilities. Why is that? Because prior to this, it's like, oh, the only people that could have killed Arushi were people who knew where Arushi's room was, knew that it was locked, and knew that night it wasn't going to be locked. Right. But now it could have been a stranger for all they knew. Because it could have just walked in through the guest room, walked in through the bathroom, and they're now in Arushi's bedroom. Oh, so you're saying like they can walk in without any going through any locks? Yes. You still have to kind of know the house layout and all yes. that. Okay. Yeah. So AJ did not know that that woman was probably spending time investigating Arushi's bedroom, the active crime scene. Just like how he probably didn't know that these are not real detectives. Which brings us to the theory that Hemraj was the original target that night. So allegedly, one of the individuals that went to use that restroom that day was a social worker by the name of Usha Thakur. Now, AJ told the CBI about this. He's like, this is really weird. These people showed up. They were pretending to be detectives. Then I turned on the TV the other day and then Usha was there. And I was like, wait a minute. She's not a detective. She's a social worker. So now I'm telling the detectives about it. Usha was saying that Hemraj had approached her five days before being killed. And Hemraj was incredibly distressed about a possible threat to his life. He was saying that his family was being threatened. He was being threatened. He wanted to speak to Usha, the social worker, privately because she's been known to help people in times of need. Now, Usha and Hemraj did not end up meeting that day because her schedule was jam-packed. And a few days later, his dead body was found. Now, she never confessed to the CBI that she was inside of the family's house that day with AJ, but it's presumed that she went in there to kind of investigate because she didn't know if the police were going to do a good job. Wait, so she knows that he's in danger, yes, but, but she has no idea what is going on. Yeah. Who is threatening who? Why is he reaching out? They were going to meet up to talk about it, but she had been so busy. And then the next thing she knew, he was dead on the terrace. 
And she came over to investigate, pretending to be a detective. She wanted to investigate. Investigating her room? Yes. Now, there's a lot going on, but usually murders are not that random. That's what the CBI believed. And you have to look at the people around the victims that are behaving strangely. And the parents, they were behaving strangely. The Tovar couple's neighbor came to the police one day and told them that he had a bloody mattress on his terrace. He's like, yeah, the parents told him that they were cleaning up the house and needed someone to store Jarushi's bloody mattress that she was found on. So they put it on his terrace along with slabs of ice. They had used slabs of ice to preserve Arushi's body and they just like dumped it on his terrace. It was all very strange. And like the fact that it's slabs of ice, that means it feels rushed. Like the parents are so desperate to clean the apartment before an investigation could be done that they're willing to throw ice and their child's bloody mattress onto a neighbor's terrace. Also, people thought it was really suspicious because before Hemraj was found dead, they were pointing the finger at Hemraj. They were like, I will even pay the police to go look for Hemraj. But the minute that Hemraj is found dead on their terrace, the couple have nothing but nice things to say about him, that he was trustworthy and kind. And the contradicting opinions about Hemraj did not sit well with the general public. And it just made them look even more suspicious. Why is that? Because if they hated Hemraj even afterwards, it's like, well, did you hate him? Did you have motive to kill him? Okay, what if, I don't know, I'm just listening to this. What if they really thought it was him, so they hated him. But when they found out that he was killed, then they were like, oh, okay, maybe he is innocent. Yeah, that's what a lot of the people that believe that they're innocent believe. So see what I mean? Everything can be flipped both ways. Mm. So it's not that I believe this theory more or the other. It's just hard for me to go through each point because each point can be argued for each different theory Mm. in a way that's beneficial to that theory. Okay. So that's what some people on the other side say. Some people on this side say, well, no, not this side as not me, but you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, additionally, Hemraj's widow also spoke out and said that her husband, Hemraj, had been calling her, telling her about how the family was kind of evil, how the dad was a short-tempered man who scolded him for the smallest things and even physically abused him. She said that 15 days before her husband was killed, he had called her from a payphone and was saying things like, oh, the parents think that I'm going to tell their secrets to the outsiders, but I don't know what they're talking about. So with all of this, I would say in general, the couple did not sit well with the public, especially the mom. The mom did an interview, which she was advised not to do, but she did it. And she wanted to refute some of the narratives circulating in the press. And she completely disagreed with all of the theories that her husband was cheating on her with their business partner slash her best friend, or the idea that her 13-year-old daughter is some sort of wild, promiscuous, sexually crazed girl that's willing to do anything to get revenge which is understandable, she hated it all. And honestly, she was appalled that the police were part of the reason that these narratives were being spread. She thought she was just doing an interview as a mother who was saying, guys, look at what they're doing to my dead daughter. Look Mm -hmm. at what the police are saying about her. But she didn't realize that she was putting herself on the stand. The whole world was analyzing her facial movements, her emotions. Every little word that she used would be analyzed and ripped apart. The general public did not like her. It was argued that she was completely emotionless during the interview. She didn't cry like everybody expected her to. I mean, some even wanted her to cry, but she didn't. People felt like as a mom, you lose your kid and this is how you respond. She's so cold. She's so emotionless. And she just had this like poshness to her the way she spoke just made it so hard for people to feel sympathetic towards her she just spoke very unrelatably 
very rich, almost like her language and verbiage was better than you, kind of condescending, like smarter than you. I'm a doctor. Side note, the interviewer that spoke with the mom that day did say the mom cried a lot and they just turned the cameras off because they wanted to give her a private moment to collect herself, but the public didn't really care. Now, the CBI interviewed a few of the first people at the scene that day when their daughter was found. They even asked friends of the couple, neighbors, and one friend stated, yeah, the mom was acting strange. They said, well, I didn't want to say anything because they're my friends, but I don't know. The mom has always been someone that cared a lot about her appearances. And even that day in her own daughter's room, while her daughter's dead body lay a few feet away from her, she kept looking in the mirror and fixing her hair. The parents did undergo rounds of truth serum investigations as well, but it was said that nothing revolutionary came out of their sessions, which the people who are for the parents say that this proves that they are innocent because the other three guys, a lot of information allegedly came out, right? Meanwhile, the people that are against the parents say the truth serum interrogations were administered by someone who was closer to the parents, you know? Like, they were likely influenced to not ask leading questions. And they argued that the men were coerced into confessing and all of those things. So we can't really go off of that. But I will say, the mom does briefly mention that while her husband was arrested, because remember, he was in jail Mm -hmm. before the three guys were in jail. She had physical relations with AJ, the guy that was house-sitting. Okay. So, I don't know. Did she just admit to having an affair while her husband is in prison for her daughter's murder? The investigators asked AJ if this was true, and he said, that's a stupid question. I'm close to her because I feel that she is a victim of a tragedy, but no, I did not have extramarital relations with her. Now, some argued that this isn't really how true serums work. Like, you drop your filter so you might say things, and she might be attracted to him, but she also talked a lot during her true serum investigation about how much she loved her husband. So it's very feasible that she loves her husband but has a physical attraction to this man, and there's nothing wrong with that, I guess you could argue. I mean, it's not murder. It doesn't imply guilt, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that she cheated on her husband while he was in jail. Others argued, oh yeah, no, this is confirmation that she cheated on her husband while he was in jail for their dead daughter's murder. That's crazy. What kind of mom does that? Major news outlets also started reporting on the parents' affinity for orgy parties. They said the parents love them. They would host these major wife-swapping events in their house and lock Arushi in her room so that she wouldn't bother them. And that's why they had the lock so that no one could go into her room at these orgy parties. Another story emerged of how the couple would book 12 hotel rooms at once and fill them with 12 different couples and like the husbands would go room to room just like wife swapping. There's no evidence of any of that. (laughs) None. But the media outlets stated the CBI as their source of information. The parents wrote to the head of the CBI and they were like, oh yeah, oops, I take it back. But the damage was already done. The general public, a lot of them believed that they were having some crazy orgy parties. But to the general public, the most damning pieces of evidence against the parents were two things. One, in the very first police report made when just Arushi, the daughter, was found dead, Hemraj was not found yet. When Hemraj was on the run, Rajaish, the dad, kept referring to Hemraj in the past tense. And two, the dad filled in the little spot marked time of death for his daughter's death certificate, and he wrote 2 a.m. The parents found her body at 6 a.m. 
How do they know what time she died? The two parents, the Tolvars, were arrested and they would be tried for their own daughter's murder as well as their employee's murder. Now, just a quick disclaimer, from what I can see online, the people who believe the parents are genuinely guilty do not believe the murder happened the way that the prosecutors are going to describe in court, nor do they believe that's the murder here. So let's go through with the investigator theory. The investigator theory is the night Rajesh, the dad, awoke from a noise. The night of the murder, he wakes up, he hears a noise, he goes to investigate. He goes first to Hemraj's room, but the employee's not there. There's two golf sticks laying in his room, golf clubs. Those are his. So he grabs one and investigates the rest of the residents. He goes straight into Arushi, his daughter's room, where he finds the two in an objectionable, suggestive position on Arushi's bed. The dad processes the scene. He already has his golf club in hand. He swings it up in the air, slams it down on Hemraj's head. Hemraj is instantly incapacitated. It's a huge blow to his head. Then the dad goes in for another one. He swings his arms back. When it comes swinging down full force, Hemraj's body gives up and he rolls off the bed from on top of Arushi. And instead of Hemraj being hit by the club, it struck his own daughter straight in the skull. Two blows, two dead. The mom hears the commotion, rushes into the room, and they check both pulses on Arushi and Hemraj. Both pulses are weak. They're both going to die. There was nothing that could be done to save them. They're dentists. They know. So they get to work. The two wrap Hemraj's bloody body into a bedsheet and drag him all the way up a flight of stairs onto the outside terrace. They hide him behind a cooler panel. They hang up the bedsheet so that the neighbors can't see. And for good measure, just to make sure he really is dead, they slit his throat. But the severing of the neck would be one of the things that would actually give the couple away. It was done so cleanly, the investigators allege, that only a doctor or a butcher would have done it like that. It's such a precise cut. Then, once they're done with Hemraj, they knew what they needed to do. They had to do the same thing with their own daughter. But this was going to be a lot harder because it's their daughter. So the dad goes downstairs, takes a bottle of whiskey out of the cabinet, takes a swig of it, puts it on the dining room table, leaving specks of Hemraj and Arushi's blood on the bottle, walking away, and goes to make the same exact cut on Arushi's throat using a scalpel. So he used a scalpel for both of them. They like went and got a scalpel. Now for consistency reasons, they clean her up. They clean up the private parts to make sure that no evidence was left behind by Hemraj. They still needed to save their family's honor. They didn't want anyone to know that Arushi had been intimate with anyone, let alone with the house staff member that's 45 years old. They wanted to protect their reputation. And whether it's to make the scene more confusing for the police or whether it's to kind of assuage some of that guilt they felt, they grab a few of Arushi's stuffed animals and place them around her. They were her favorite and maybe they wanted her to not be alone after she passed. The parents passionately object this theory and they believe that this is more of an unhinged plot of a badly written book. Their defense attorney focuses on the fact that none of it made any sense. They argue that, first of all, even if the parents were having wild intimate parties with everyone on the block, they didn't have proof of that. But even if they were, to extend that kind of logic and promiscuity to a 13-year-old, to say that their daughter was so upset with them that she had an affair, that's what they called it, 
the prosecutors called it an affair. It's not an affair, by the way, if there's a 13-year-old involved. That she had an affair, though, with a 45-year-old man is just wild. It's just so unhinged. And the idea that this 45-year-old grown man who seems to genuinely care for children would have an affair, quote, affair with a 13-year-old, it's insulting and offensive for both victims. But the parents' defense attorneys argue, okay, fine, let's entertain the idea that the CBI has and the prosecutors have, that Arushi and Hemraj were intimate. The defense attorney argued, would Arushi really not even think to lock the door to her room when her parents are right next door? And why would the dad grab the golf clubs from Hemraj's room before he goes to Arushi's room? That's usually something that you'll grab in a fit of anger after you process a really heinous scene. He stated he heard a noise. He didn't hear screaming or anything anything alarming and if Hemraj is not in his own room why would the dad grab the golf club and go to his daughter's room now the prosecutors do have a rebuttal which is because he already suspected that they were intimate so maybe he thought something was going on now the defense attorneys would say it's not impossible but it just doesn't make any sense human psychology wise additionally once the dad is in the room the defense attorneys argued why would they not just kill Hemraj right then and there because naturally wouldn't they be scared that he would wake back up and fight while they're trying to move his body up to the terrace why wouldn't they just kill him in the room Mm -hmm. and let's say they did bring his body to the terrace to quote finish him off why didn't they just kill him with the golf club or put a pillow on his face and suffocate him why did they suddenly decide to slit his throat which is undeniably a much much messier job and it's going to leave a lot more blood left behind soaking into the cement so these are the main premises that the two parties went into the trial with and now i'm just going to rapid fire point by point One thing to note before we get into it is that a lot of people, again, do not like the mom's energy during the trial. They said that it looked like she owned the room. Like she didn't look guilty. She looked determined and just unemotional the whole time. It just was a lot. Others defended her and said, well, yeah, because if you were being ridiculously framed for your daughter's murder and they were accusing your daughter of sleeping with a 45-year-old man, would you not look pissed and determined more than anything? I don't know. Now, the first argument was, Hemraj's body was found hidden on the terrace. The cooler panel, the sheet, it blocked everything, you know, the missing keys. Was that intentionally done so that the police would have to stall or could not find a way onto the terrace? The defense argued, it would be incredibly stupid for the parents to make a crazy assumption that the police would not search the terrace the first day. Most people would safely assume that the police would search the terrace because is their job. Mm -hmm. So if it were the parents that killed Hemraj, are they really stupid or bold enough to think that the police are not going to search the terrace right then and there? It's kind of the most logical place to search for weapons or clues. And a little house lock on it is not going to be a barrier to the police. The defense got a little bit more intense with their arguments. They argued that the timeline given by the CBI, it just doesn't make sense. If the couple killed Arushi and Hemraj that night, why did they not try to dispose of Hemraj's body the night before? So if they killed them at 2 a.m., they had like four hours. Like take it away from the house? Yeah, like Mm -hmm. take his body into the trunk of the car and like dispose of him somewhere else. Because they can't keep him on the terrace forever. That's very short-sighted. It's stupid to think that the police won't search the terrace. And second of all, I mean, the entire residence is going to be watched like a hawk after Arushi's body is found at 6 in the morning. 
There's no way. I mean, everything going in and out of that house is going to be watched by press, media, police, everyone. And it's May in India. The weather is about 100 degrees. There's no way that they would think that Hemraj's body could just be left up there to decompose and not signal to any neighbor that there's a nasty smell, a suspicious smell coming out of that already suspicious home. That's what the defense attorneys are arguing. They stated the most logical option for the Tolvar parents, had they killed both of them that night, would be to put Hemraj's body into a sack, put his body into a car, and dispose of him outside of the house. Then they come home, set up the scene, make it look like Hemraj was trying to essay Arushi, then ended up killing her and then fleeing the scene and is now on the run. And in fact, leaving Hemraj's DNA on their daughter's private parts, if there was any, and not wiping her like the prosecutor claimed, would have been the best in their favor. They would have been the victim, their daughter would have been the victim, Hemraj would have been the evil killer. Yeah, I mean, I see. Like, every theory makes no sense. Like, yeah. it, it's like, we don't know, man. It doesn't add up. Nothing adds up. And it's going to get worse. The prosecutor argued that maybe it's not possible that there would be nowhere in that town that the parents could really dispose of Henraj's body in the city and he would not be found. And moving the body would be a clear implication of guilt. Whereas if Henraj's body was found in the house, they could still try to argue that maybe someone broke in while they were sleeping or that Henraj had invited people over to his house and had been murdered or something of that sort. Maybe they ran through all the possibilities in their mind, but if the police found a speck of Henraj's blood in their car, what kind of answer do you have for that no innocent person has an answer for sorry i moved a body but like trust me i'm innocent the prosecutors also argued if anybody else had killed hemraj in that house why would they even bother moving his body up into the terrace hiding him behind the cooler panel and then hanging up the bed sheet so that the neighbors don't find him they would just kill him and leave him wherever he was dead and flee the scene as quickly as possible if indeed two people were sleeping in the next room over because there's so much risk that they're gonna get caught yeah Additionally, prosecutors argued the terrace was locked from the inside, meaning to get out onto the terrace, the authorities needed a key. So these intruders, while the couple were asleep, killed Arushi, dragged Hemraj onto the terrace without him screaming and waking up the parents, killed him, got the key out of his pocket, unlocked the terrace door, then got him up to the terrace, killed him, and then for some reason hid his body out of view, grabbed the terrace key back, and then locked the terrace on their way out, and then ran off? To the prosecutors, that just didn't sound feasible. The prosecutors also argued that the attempt to hide Hemraj's body lay in the fact that the dad was hoping the police would just take his word for it, that Hemraj was the killer, that he's just hired help after all, and he himself is a reputable dentist. That's why the dad kept urging the police to stop searching the house and find Hemraj, because they wanted the police out of the house and not search the terrace. But the defense attorneys argued that the parents are just using critical thinking skills. There are four people in the house, no signs of a break-in. One is dead, one is missing. You would imagine that the one missing might be the killer, no? The defense attorney argued they're merely trying to catch their daughter's killer who may have not gotten that far at this point. The longer you wait, the harder it is to catch a killer. Would you not do the same thing for justice for your child? The prosecutors argued, speaking of justice for the child, why were the parents so quick to cremate her body? All the clues to the crime are hidden in the body, so why? Unless they themselves have something to hide? It just seems unnaturally quick. The defense argued that up until that point, Hemraj was the killer in their minds, and the autopsy, the medical examiner was like, yeah, we're good. So they wanted to put her body to rest. They said they had already cremated her and it was too late by the point that Hemraj's body was found. Had Hemraj's body been found sooner, they would not have cremated her body. But how about the fact that once they found Hemraj, 
The dad couldn't even ID him. Was he truly such a bad employer and a heartless, cruel person that he didn't even recognize the guy that he had been living with for the past seven months? Or is that guy just invisible to him because he's the help? Or was this another attempt for the dad to confuse investigators? Is he trying to be like, hmm? Maybe it is hemorrhage. Maybe it's not. It could be a different guy. We don't know. Is that what he was trying to do? The defense argued no. They stated that hemorrhage's body was so bloated after death and the heat of the terrace for the past 24 hours that he looked drastically different. But to the police, because they had never seen hemorrhage prior to his death, they had no original face to compare him to. Even the retired officer G stated that hemorrhage's face was, quote, it was huge. Nobody was able to recognize him. The defense argued, if you reference medical texts, you will see that there is a lot of changes in the face the first 48 hours of decomp. Eyes are forced out of their sockets. A frothy reddish liquid is just forced out of the mouth and the nostrils. The abdomen becomes distended. The whole human body goes into a bloat phase where it becomes twice its size. So yeah, he didn't recognize him. The prosecutors argued both bodies were found with slit throats caused by a very sharp-edged light instrument that they suspect was a scalpel. It was too light and sharp to be a butcher's knife or a big kitchen knife or even the kukuri, the Nepali knife. It just, this was even thinner. It seemed like a surgical instrument that was wielded with precision. The prosecution argued not many people, especially people without these types of professions, would have the ability to create cuts this clean. The defense argued, why would the parents use a scalpel? Why would they use an instrument that nobody else has in their house but dentists and like other doctors? Like that would be dumb. Why wouldn't they just use a kitchen knife if they have kitchen knives right in their kitchen? Why would they go out of their way to get a scalpel instead? They also argued because they're dentists, they're not surgeons. They mainly work with dental scalpels, which are really tiny. Like they're used to cut into your gums, not like into your body. It's it's the blade is only like one to three centimeters deep. But the prosecutors argued it really only takes two centimeters to sever the major arteries in the neck. Now. Why the slit throats? As for the reasoning behind slitting their throats, the prosecutors argued the parents did it to confirm that both were actually dead. They had to kill Hamraj because he was a witness to everything and he was sleeping with their daughter. They had to kill their daughter because she was already injured and dying and they couldn't, they couldn't go away for this, right? It would ruin the family honor. Okay, but that's why they had to be killed. But why slit their throats? The defense argues none of that makes sense. I mean, if they wanted to kill both of them, why not just do something that's less bloody? Like, why leave so much blood behind? Would it not have been smarter to just suffocate them with a pillow or a bag over their heads and then take it away? The slitting of the throats makes just weird. It's weird. It makes more sense in a situation if someone wants to make someone shut up. Because maybe if you're suffocating someone and you still think that there's a risk of them coming back conscious, they could scream and they could scream through the pillow. But slitting their throats, I mean, it's pretty instant and it's a very noiseless death. The defense said for that, it makes more sense that it was the three staff members that would slit their throats so that they wouldn't make a noise. Speaking of blood, the defense wanted to know how the parents could have killed both Hemraj and Arushi in the bedroom, and there is zero evidence of Hemraj's DNA in the bedroom. No blood, nothing. But he was hit with the golf club, according to the prosecutor's theory, in the bedroom, and he had a head wound that was probably bleeding. So none of his blood was in her room? Not a single drop of blood. So maybe he didn't bleed or the parents are just so good at killing and like they're able to see whose blood is whose blood. 
The defense argued that if you just had the crime scene and used reasonable logic, the more logical assumption would be that Hemraj was killed on the terrace, that he had voluntarily walked up to the terrace and then he had been attacked, which makes more sense in the three men theory versus the parent theory. Because if the parents caught him in the bedroom, how would they get him up the stairs without injuring him? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The defense also argued that Hemraj was found with slippers on when he was found. And the prosecutors are stating that Hemraj was dragged in a sheet all the way up the stairs and his slippers never fell off. Or they're saying that the slippers did fell off, but the parents put them back on after he was killed. The defense is like, no, he probably walked up to the terrace and then was killed. And that's why. Another big point of dispute was the cell phone. So that morning, Barty came to the house and the housekeeper. Usually, Hemraj would be the one to let her in, but this time he wasn't there. So the mom calls Hemraj and someone answers the phone, but they hang up quickly afterwards. And then when the mom calls back, the phone is shut off. Somebody had turned it off. The prosecutors argued that perhaps the mom called Hemraj's phone to act like she was trying to see where he was because later, if the police get involved, she needs to have record of this phone conversation or at least the attempt to call. Call. But when she called, she realized that his phone's ringer wasn't turned off. So she and her husband quickly picked up to disconnect the sound in case Barty could hear from outside the door. They hung up and then they turned the phone off and then they called again just for, you know, making it look good. But on the other hand, the defense argued that if the Tovars had killed both their daughter and Hemraj, they had all night to set this up. One of the first things that they would have done is look for Hemraj's phone and silence it or turn it off. Even Arushi's phone was missing from the house. So clearly, if they were guilty, they were paying close attention to their phones. It doesn't make sense for them to forget to turn it off and let it ring. And then it's just weird. But the prosecutor argues that a lot of things can be forgotten in the rush of the moment. The parents were on a time crunch. They knew that Barty was coming at six in the morning to clean the house. So they needed to get all of these things done by then. Now, side note, Arushi's phone was found later on. Yeah, a man had it. Found where? Yeah, he just like found it. He was like, yeah. So we can assume that the killers dumped her phone. But he had mm. no affiliation with the murder or the crime. And the phone, interestingly enough, he did not know it belonged to a murder victim because it was completely wiped of all the data. And that is another point that the prosecutors use. The prosecutors argue that the parents would be the only ones to have any sort of incentive to delete the data off their daughter's phone. Who else would do that? Like the three guys, if they were just there to essay Arushi, there would be no point for them to wipe her phone other than just trash it. Why wipe it? But then I guess you could argue. They Why are you even trash it? I don't, I don't, I don't get the yeah. cell phone thing. That's so true. There must be something on there. Like what, what yeah. are we doing? That's so true. We read two books on this case, watched like a whole docu series, and did so much internet research, and no one pointed that out. Yeah, why trash it? Then there was the argument about the whiskey bottle left on the dining table. It had both Arushi and Hemraj's blood on it but none of the parents' fingerprints. So the prosecutor stated that it was their belief that the dad took a swig of whiskey in preparation to kill his daughter. Killing Hemraj was easy for him, right? Because he's nobody, he's invisible, he's a helper. But killing his precious daughter is a different story. So he went and grabbed it, transferring the blood onto the whiskey bottle and took a sip. But there's no, none of his fingerprints on the bottle. Yeah. The prosecutors say he was wearing gloves. That's why. The defense argues, well, that just doesn't make any sense. When did he put on gloves, 
Right. So now we're just like putting together all these random things. And why would he have left it on the dining room table then? Why would he have not just cleaned off the blood and then put it back in the cabinet? Or why didn't he plant it in Hemraj's room or try to come up with some sort of case clues that the police can go off of that would point away from the parents? That doesn't even make any sense. That's what they said. But then the prosecutors argue, so if it wasn't the parents, then the real, quote-unquote, real killers would have taken out the whiskey bottle and drank from it? What kind of killers do that? If they're in a crime scene where there's two parents sleeping and they could be caught at any moment, who stops to go find the whiskey bottle and then drink out of it? On top of that, the family does not have like a clear liquor cabinet. It's in like an enclosed space. So you would have to either A, know where the family keeps their liquor, or B, go searching for the liquor. Why would they be doing that? Now, in defense of the teddy bears, the prosecutors argued that the same goes for the setting up of the teddy bears on Arushi's bed, all the stuffed animals. Remember, someone had set up the teddy bears around Arushi after they killed her. The teddy bears were placed on top of blood splatter, but there was no blood splatter on the bears, indicating that they were placed on top after the crime. What kind of killer does that? The prosecutors argued, who would waste their time when the victim's parents are sleeping nine feet away to position teddy bears around the victim? It's odd, unless you know the parents are not going to come bursting into the room because you are the parents. Are you placing the dolls on the bed to get rid of some of that guilt? The defense argues that still doesn't make any sense. They argue the theory that the three men set up the scene before they go to the terrace with Hemraj after essaying Arushi. That makes more sense. Why else would they put the teddy bears on there? Then what about the internet router? This was like a whole thing. There's 5 million points for this trial, okay? The prosecutors argued that there was an internet router in Arushi's room. Apparently that night it stopped working, so the mom had to go into Arushi's room to reset the router, which suggests that she was in Arushi's room, but also that she was awake. And the prosecutor stated, the internet remained active in the night of the gory incident, suggesting that at least one of the accused, one of the parents, remained awake during the events. The Wait, prosecutors, what does that mean? How do we know he's there? was there? internet activity coming from the house. But anybody could be on internet. Yeah, the defense. Oh, oh, they're saying they're dead by at two o'clock, and someone's still using the internet. Yeah, so and the parents, the parents said they're alive. asleep. Ah, hmm. Mm -hmm. But then the defense argued that the internet router showing activity doesn't mean anything because there was activity even the next day when briefly nobody was home. Okay. Another huge point of contention was that Arushi was just nine feet away from her parents. How was she murdered without them waking up or hearing anything? To that, the defense argued a few points. One, that Arushi was sick when she was murdered. She had laryngitis, so for her to scream, it was very difficult. Two, the parents defended themselves, stating that they had a broken air conditioner in their room that was so noisy that they could not hear anything coming from outside of that room. And it's like 100 degrees outside. They can't keep it on. The judge wrote about this whole sound debate. A sound test was carried out and it was found that the accused sleeping in their bedroom with the air conditioning switched on cannot hear opening and closing or bolting of entry-exit doors. Interestingly, the sound test also showed that shouting and screaming from the next room could not be heard because of the AC. Wow, that yes. must be really loud AC. Yeah. Then there is the situation of the deleted photos. The night of Arushi's death, she was gifted an early birthday present, a digital camera. She was playing with it at dinner, taking pictures and messing around. But when police took the camera into possession, 18 
pictures had been deleted, which doesn't sound like a lot, but take into consideration that she only took 23 pictures, meaning that she kept five and deleted 18 pictures. Why? Did the parents delete them? Like how they deleted all the data off of her phone before getting rid of it? Were there pictures of Hemraj? Were there pictures of Arushi and Hemraj? Did it show pictures of the parents doing something in the background or doing other things that they didn't want the public to know? Is that why? The defense argued the deleted pictures were just a result of a teenager messing around on a camera that she just got. Like, would you keep every single faulty picture on your camera roll? And it's her first time using the new digital camera. She could have been learning the settings. But more than that, the defense argued that the camera was actually photographic evidence that the parents were not killers. The pictures from the night before showed the mom in her nightgown. And the next morning... When Barty, the cleaner, came and the police came, she was still wearing the very same nightgown and she had no blood on her nightgown. So that detail matched up. Yes. But the prosecutors argue, what if that was planned? Because let's say her story is correct. She woke up to her daughter being dead. You would not hug your daughter. You would not hold her in your arms. You would not resuscitate her getting blood on you. Did you intentionally keep your nightgown clean to say, hey, look at the pictures? And they also argued, why give her her camera a few days early before her birthday? Okay, now the argument sounds like they're saying... It's premeditated. Yeah, premed- that will be even more insane. Then the whole, this whole plot will be even crazier. Like, yeah. They would, I feel like they would have planned it much better than this, right? Yeah. So I honestly, I don't know what to think about any of these things. Now, I will say that the defense actually had a pretty strong case in the trial, not because I'm saying that the parents are innocent. I truly don't know, but it does seem like the prosecutors just took a really strange angle at this case. I think a lot of the public agrees, even if they think that the parents are guilty. But it didn't really matter because the judge had made up their mind. The judge, he was writing his verdict statement before the defense even started their closing arguments. There's a lot on this judge in a second, okay? Now, the parents would be sentenced to life in prison for double homicide. Yeah. Now, I will say again, regardless of what you believe, the general public does agree that regardless of actual guilt, the parents in this specific trial, it seemed like all circumstantial evidence, and yet they were still convicted. It didn't seem like there was like that one strong, aha, gotcha moment. There were a lot of other parts of the trial that were really questionable. So right after inspecting Arushi's body during the autopsy, Dr. Doheri stated that there were no injuries on Arushi's private parts. He even wrote that on the report saying nothing abnormal detected. He took swabs, sent them to a pathologist who stated that there were no signs of SA in the swabs, no male fluids detected either. But suddenly during the trial, he came back years after Arushi's death, years after seeing Arushi's body because she can't be exhumed. Remember, she's cremated. And the doctor was like, oh, yeah, by the way, I have like a new finding for you. Her private parts were so dilated that I could make eye contact with her cervix. Dilated meeting wide open. Which seems like a detail that you would absolutely include in the initial autopsy. When the CBI asked, why didn't you include that in the initial autopsy report, Dr. Doheri? He said, comments about the private parts of the body were not made as findings were nonspecific and just very strange. Isn't that the point of the autopsy to point out anything and everything that's strange, even if you no, don't have a like shady, a shady, 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 shady. Yeah, it's just so weird. 
So he goes from nothing abnormal to later stating in trial, it was so wide that he had never seen anything like that before. But you didn't think to include that in the initial autopsy? Then the doctor who did Hemraj's autopsy came to testify. It's a different doctor. And he stated that Hemraj's private part was so swollen after his death that he absolutely must have been engaged in intimate relations or was about to start intimate relations a thousand percent. Otherwise, it would not be so swollen post-mortem. The defense brought in other doctors and medical text because remember, his body was bloated to twice its size. Every part of his body was bloated. They're yeah. like, what are you talking about? Everything gets swollen during decomposition. And the doctor's rebuttal to that was just, oh, well, I wasn't going off based off of medical text or medical experience. I was actually making this speculation and theory from my marriage experience. Was he trying to state that when he is about to be in intimate settings, he gets so swollen? So that must mean that that's why hemorrhage is swollen, regardless of decomposition processes. There were a lot of different instances of mishandling of evidence, mislabeling of evidence like the pillowcase. Also, like DNA swabs were mislabeled. So at one point, there was a whole rumor that she wasn't even the biological child of the parents because they ran her DNA and it was mislabeled. It wasn't her DNA. And they were like, oh, my God, she's not the child. Yeah, it was a mess. Then there was the situation with the email address, okay? So the CBI created an email address, the new team that hates the parents, right? Whether rightfully so or not, I don't know. But they created a new email address with Hemraj's full name at gmail.com and they would only use that email to reach out to Arushi's parents. Yeah. Like at best, it's very creepy. Like imagine the police are investigating you for murdering this specific person and now they're emailing you with that specific person's name in the email address. For what purpose? Like are they baiting? No. No, they're, they, they're like, this is the CBI. They're just trying to get in their heads. Yeah. I don't even know what to think. Like there's so much argument. There's so much random evidence that's so confusing and so unreliable and it's yeah. just so all over the place guys we had like five people all hands on deck working on this and i just want to say this is just the tip of the iceberg each point can get boiled down even more there's more points i didn't even fully cover so and that's why you're saying like even like most people still don't know no they, everyone just kind of feel like yeah, okay. everyone just has like a gut feeling and they're like, yeah, I think that's the theory that makes the most sense. But it, it's really hard. There were allegations that the relatives of the victim's family, well, Arushi's family, had called and asked the autopsy technicians, like, can you not mention any like R word essay in the report? That was later denied. I mean, there's just a lot going on. Later, the CBI also kept referring to AJ. Do you guys remember AJ? Mm -hmm. The one that the truth serum, the mom was like, oh, yeah, I like, had physical relations with him. But also he let the people in that weren't detectives. That guy? Yeah. Yeah. The CBI kept referring to him as a relative, which he's not a relative. So it's very confusing. Is he the man that the mom was having an affair with? Or is he a relative? Or in the eyes of the CBI, is he both? Yeah, the judge was also a very interesting character in all of this. He just really did not care. He was retiring literally five days after the trial was over, and he just seemed ready to go. He was also blatantly very biased. Sometimes the defense attorney would be talking, and he would just say, How much more, sir? How much more? Let's finish it off. Come on. Yeah. 
Then there was the situation with the morning walker during trial. So there was a guy named Sanjay, and he testified during the trial about all the weird behaviors that the couple were having the morning that their daughter was found dead. He's like, yeah, the parents are freaking weird. Now, Sanjay said that every morning he liked to drive somewhere to take his morning walk. After his walk, he was on his drive back home and he saw this commotion outside this house. A lot of activity. So he goes in, he's curious, and he sees just like very odd things happening. He said that someone was murdered. He quickly put it two and two together. The parents were acting very strange. He said that the parents were roaming from room to room, talking to the visitors, more like they're hosting some sort of networking event. He noted that he never saw them going anywhere near their daughter's body and showed zero signs of grief. And he was very surprised. He also mentioned seeing blood on the stairs leading up to the terrace. Now, here's a few problems with his testimony. He works for the CBI. (laughs) He works for the CBI, but he said that he's not testifying as a CBI official because he wasn't working on this case. He was just there at a personal capacity. But then also... Sanjay was an invisible witness. Not a single person remembered seeing him at the crime scene. And additionally, he lives 20 miles away from the family. Meaning, did he drive 20 miles one way just to take a morning walk and then 20 miles back? He also could not name any landmarks near the family house. Like you were saying, he could be making this up? It's like people are very strongly saying that the CBI was just like, ah, we need another witness. And he's like, I work for the CBI. Let me just go over there. Yeah, he's the witness that never existed. Yeah. And again, regardless of if you think the parents are guilty or not, that's not what I'm arguing. I'm just trying to say the trial was crazy. The trial was crazy. And a good chunk of the public still does not care. They still do not like the parents. At one point during the legal proceedings, the dad was attacked on the way to the courthouse with an unhinged man with a meat cleaver. He was attacked in broad daylight and his forehead and his hands were really badly injured. And when he was imprisoned, this was the very first time he was imprisoned. The dad said it was like just really gross the way that they were treating him. At this point, he was about to be free. The dad was about to be free, remember? And the three men had been arrested for his daughter's murder. And one of them, his own assistant, was on the way to the courthouse with him in the police van. And they have to handcuff all the people together, the prisoners together, in pairs of two. His own assistant? Krishna, his dental assistant. So so they're all in jail at the same time. Yeah, and they're all about to go from the jail to the courthouse at the same day because they've got the same day of hearings. Uh-huh. And each person that goes into that police van has to be handcuffed in pairs. Uh-huh. The guards were like, you and Krishna are going together. And the dad is like, no, 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 no. This is the guy who's in jail for killing my daughter. And they're like, sorry, we only have this extra pair of handcuffs. So they handcuffed him to Krishna. And he said it was the worst day of his life. He said he was sobbing. Please don't do this. This man killed my daughter. Please. So again, even if the parent is guilty, that's just crazy because he didn't have a trial at that point. That was his very first arrest. Mm. Now, the two parents were thrown in jail. And after five long years of being in prison, they had appealed the minute that they were thrown in prison. The verdict was overturned and the parents were free five years later. The new judge that took a look at the case said the CBI failed to prove the three pillars of a trial. There was no um, direct evidence linking the parents to the murder. There were no eyewitnesses, and they failed to establish a valid motive for the murders. A lot of people were divided on this decision. 
Some people who thought that the parents were guilty were upset. And later, the parents' own defense attorney was asked what he thought about the couple. This is the guy that defended them. Mm -hmm. And if they were capable of murder. And he said, honestly, the dad, too soft, too emotional, not capable of murder, would not be able to live with himself. And the mom, yes. I don't know what that means. I guess he just thinks that she's capable of murder. But like that doesn't, I don't know what that means. Like, I don't know what any of this means in anything anymore. (sighs) I think the saddest part about all of this is that regardless of who we think that did it or who you think that did it, Hemraj is kind of a double victim in this. Um, I think Arushi got a lot of attention for being 13, for being the child of the parents. But Hemraj, I mean, he worked 24-7 to ensure that his family back home had a livable income. He had a wife and children, and he showed no tendencies of any any inappropriate, violent behavior. There was no presence of drugs or alcohol in his system. Not that that would change anything, but instead of being viewed as a victim who lost his life in a violent murder, his reputation just swings back and forth. Oh, is he a person who's willing to sleep with a 13-year-old? Is he this? Is he that? Does he hang out with killers? It just, <sighs> Hemraj's widow, his wife, said that life was difficult with him away for work, but now it's even more miserable because at least back then, she always knew that he was coming home. So, regardless of who you believe did it, all we know is the killer is free. So leave your thoughts in the comments. Please stay safe, and I will see you on Wednesday for the next one. Bye.